Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week, I am joined by Stephen Godfrey, the national college football writer for SB Nation. We will dive into the off-season content machine. We will talk about strength of schedule, why it matters, why it doesn't, and why the conversations around it sometimes are so dumb. We will talk about Alabama and Clemson and try to figure out what the meaning of last season's national championship game. And is there a silver lining here somehow for Alabama? We will also let the conversation move around organically. We talk a little Pac-12. We talk a little Georgia football. We talk about making the sport more of a national sport and why that is important. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts and just about anywhere you like to get your podcasts. Please subscribe. And if so inclined, please give us a good review. It helps us find more college football fans, and it helps more college football fans find us. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. Joining me this week on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, as I believe this is a first-time guest, Stephen Godfrey, the national college football writer from SB Nation. I don't think you've been on before. I know I've had your partner in crime, Bill Conley, on a couple of times, and mm-hmm. I have been on your podcast, but I am remiss. I have been remiss at getting you on here, I believe. I think that's right. Yeah, I'll just apologize and say, sorry it's been taking so long. Thanks for coming on and welcome. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And as we were, we'll recreate a little conversation that we had before we started recording here. And that is, it's been a somewhat of a quiet off season. Uh, I will tempt fate by saying that. I think we, at this point, are starting to brace for the next horrible thing to come down the path. Because at this point, if, if it's not horrible, it's not news. It's only news at this time of the year if it's horrible. So we don't have realignment. We don't even have good realignment rumors because we're so far off the cycle. We don't have... Uh, a scandal that started, you know, a lot of years you'll have a scandal that, that permeates from the previous season through or starts in the spring. We haven't had that. Um, and we were talking right before we went on the air last year, we had urban, but urban was much later in the summer cycle. So um, just knowing this industry pretty well, I, I have faith that something is going to happen. And if I feel like we're picking Super Bowl squares or something, I would say like, second or third week of July. I feel like we'll have something emerge. But other than that, since spring football, it has been eerily quiet. You could do an interesting uh, Super Bowl squares pool of dates on one side and catastrophes on the other side. Yeah, you'd have to not. Yeah, you'd have to. So you'd be in the date range as well as actually figure out what flavor of controversy we're going to have. So we don't have a we don't have a Baylor situation. We don't have an Art Bryles. We don't have um, I mean, Urban was very big, but it didn't feel like a summer controversy because it happened so late in the cycle. Right, right. Um, you know, you had Hugh Freeze got fired. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a summer. Yeah, so, um, sometimes you have the uh, the NCAA-related scandal that yeah. leaks over into the summer. That you, you get some of those things. And sometimes, like, not to take it lightly, sometimes you have the horrible stuff of like maybe a player dying or something along those right. lines or, or some type of death. Um, you know, you've had you know Bob Stoops retiring in the summer a few years ago. Though That was actually probably spring. And that wasn't horrible. Like, that was surprising. And it certainly drove yes. the news cycle for a couple of days. But ultimately, you know, nothing horrible drove Bob Stoops into retirement. So after a couple of days of being shocked and writing about how great Bob Stoops was and how interesting it was that Lincoln Riley was going to take over, we all sort of merrily went on our way. Right, right. We have it's been relatively calm. I mean, you know, the Meyer thing was was sort of kind of a half measure in terms of a scandal we cover because, he, you know, he ends up coming back and then retiring. But um no, it's it's been quiet. We, we've now spent what three or four minutes on this, so we have guaranteed ourselves right. some strange, sudden, horrible thing. Um, it does feel like someone might start talking about expansion out of nowhere, kind of like we had with uh, with Bullsby doing that at Big Twelve Media Days a couple summers ago, just to defray from the Baylor attention. We now know that there was no real; they never really wanted to expand. It was just a great kind of in the moment bait and switch. Um, 
In fact, I have this vivid memory, and I think you were there as well at Big 12 Media Days. You know, Bullsby is just, he's getting pounded, uh, you know, on the podium and off. He's in the group setting afterwards, kind of out in the lobby of this hotel in Dallas. And it was almost as if it was like a kid trying to distract his parents from the fact that, like, he wrecked a car or, you know, something major by just throwing something out there that they you knew everyone in the media would seize upon, and that was considering the expansion process. And then we immediately all took the bait, shifted gears. We started talking about Houston and South Florida and BYU, and then that ran for you know all the way into October that year. So um, who knows? Maybe maybe the Pac-12 is open for business. We don't know it yet. They're adding four teams, and we're going to find out in July. Hopefully that's not the case, but then again, again, yes. it would give us some some things to talk about. So listen, I, I brought you on again at a slow time, but we I was you know looking for an interesting topic and a couple of things that have been sort of making their way on the internets. Mm-hmm. And I know Twitter is not real life, but sometimes you get some interesting topics on Twitter. And of course, the evergreen topic in college football is always strength of schedule, how tough schedules should be, who's got tough schedules, how do you measure tough schedules? And this is a, a, an area of expertise for you, especially because your podcast with Bill Conley of SB Nation is literally podcast ain't played nobody. So your podcast is an ode to the stupidity side, really, of the of the strength of schedule argument. The thing is, I think there's some interesting stuff within strength of schedule to talk about and have a kind of a smart, interesting debate. But as with most things in our world right now, anywhere where there is potential for smart and interesting generally comes down to stupid and yelling, right? Right. So let's try to avoid stupid and yelling. But I'm wondering. So does that mean we don't get to talk about UCF? No, we can we can go anywhere you want with this. But I guess what I'm wondering is when you start taking sort of value of strength of schedule, is it something that we that we talk about too much? Is it something that is overrated? Let's just start with that. I think that if you jump ahead to the end of the season and and we're getting into playoff selection time. It's a great argument to hold against 70% of the field because I am I, I don't really I don't want this to come off as conspiratorial, but I think a four team playoff format is inherently des- designed to cater to and to protect the power five plus Notre Dame. And that's fine. I would I would have absolutely no issue with that if the committee was just a little bit more transparent and kind of, you know, just put a little faith in the ownership of what this thing is. So what happens, and I I feel like the argument gets the most uh, insane around that time in, you know, late November, early December, because you have a usurper that rolls through. And historically it's been, the funny thing about UCF, you're talking about like people getting angry and, and, and how out of context this thing gets. I think a lot of that is because UCF, is not Boise State. And what I mean by that is that we've seen UCF act, act in a way, Ralph, that is aggressive, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've been down there. You've talked to their – it's their fans. It's it's the it's the local media that supports them. It's Danny White. I think, it, you know, it was it was Scott Frost before he left, and, and, and Hypel's a little bit smoother about it now. But this is a brand that really – wants to activate its its fans and 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 have some agency in the discussion whereas if you if you call up brian harson at boise state right now he'll probably give you roughly the same answer he's given me for the past six or seven years which is if boise state goes undefeated we feel like we should be in the conversation for the national championship and they sort of leave it at that right Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the level of activism that we've seen from the g5 it never really got much further than that ucf is angry. They're frustrated. I think even even beating Auburn and, and playing LSU uh, this past year, but I think the, the, especially the game against Auburn in the Peach, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. that's cold comfort to them. They they felt like they should have been in in the playoff, and and there's an anger and an activism now around that, and I think that's sort of galvanized everybody in the strength of schedule conversation because when you go back to those last two or three weeks. That seems to be the one conversation topic that people can't escape. I also do think that on the uh, opposite end of the spectrum, those who very much love and those who very much hate Notre Dame, they usually lean into that schedule thing before they even talk about the actual football stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's convenient. The other thing is this, Ralph, you can't change it, right? Uh, You know, I don't care how great of a, a G5 you are 
or even if you're Notre Dame, you're, you're never going to be able to create uh, a schedule the quality of of you know a top tier SEC Big Ten you know Clemson in the ACC now that that's just not that's not possible so it doesn't really matter because it's not a metric we can use universally in our sport right and well I think that's part of the issue is how do you even use the metric and what metric are you using to quantify strength first of all to simply lean into strength of schedule is to miss the point of evaluating a team, right? At a certain point, you can be good even though the teams that you are playing are not that good. And we we are now going through this with literally every team because now it's getting to Alabama hasn't played anybody and Clemson hasn't played anybody. We have (laughs) elevated this to to which a a part of me, part of my thinking why it has become sort of stupid, the whole conversation is – we are sort of to the point where, just like your podcast says, nobody has played anybody. At some point, I like to try to sort of get across to people, with be them on Twitter or on the radio or whoever I'm talking to in the fan, is like, right. this is college football, you know? Like, this is just sort of the teams, right? I mean, like, the, there is there is a fantasy land that you might be living in where a team has constructed a schedule with nothing but top 10 teams and even that probably won't satisfy you. Well, so, it's just not possible. You, right. you don't have any other sport where, you, where you're expected to have 130 teams at even strength and somehow create a 12-game season where we feel like, you know, you can accurately stratify that information. It's not possible. And, that, you know, it's funny. We, we took that name, Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. One, we, were, we started a podcast four years ago, like everybody. And I think at that point, every football metaphor was taken, you know, <laughs> the huddle, the audible, the solid verb, you know, all, all of our friends that have these different podcasts. And so uh, Bill and I were talking one day, and we're like, what is the dumbest, most myopic conversation that we have to deal with the most when you do, you know, when you take calls on, a, you do like local talk radio, what is the one thing that you hear as you're walking through the tailgates to go cover a game that is just the most short-sighted, asinine piece of logic and that it, it usually comes back to, well, they ain't played nobody. Right, right. Because, you know, I, I think mathematically now I, there, there are so many outliers against that argument to, to have had a weak schedule or to have had uh, a, an especially difficult schedule does not necessarily prove that you are going to win or lose a game. Mm-hmm. The Football is so circumstantial anyway. Um, I, it's always going to exist. It's always it's going to exist for a number of reasons. One, again, you you have a twelve to thirteen game schedule. There's one hundred and thirty teams, so there's no real way to measure. And then it's it's convenient. It's easy. It's it's a quick way to. Uh, it's also a quick way to show, you know, how tribal you are because what you're really saying as a fan when Ohio State ain't played nobody is you're you're what are you doing there? You're dismissing the Big Ten, right? Right. Even if Ohio State has scheduled some amazing non conference game against. No Southern Cal or Alabama or whatever. What you're doing is you're able you're you're throwing that indictment down on that nine or ten game run that they went on in conference play, and that will always cut the, the core of this sport is always going to be tribalism. Right, right, and that's that's a great point. Essentially, what you're saying is because you haven't played the teams that I like, yes, <laughs> or that my team has played, you have not played anybody any good. Right. The other aspect of strength, and this becomes a more technical thing that's probably a little more like numbers cruncher, again, Bill C's Avenue, but let's talk about it anyway. I think it's necessary on an intellectual level to take strength of schedule into the evaluation process. So I, sure, sure. So I do that by going to Bill C's page and looking at S&P Plus and going to... Sagarin, which is a more is a more simplified measure of who you played and who they played, right? right. Or or Brian Fremo and his his stats and his page, or even ESPN, which I know gets a lot of shade for their metrics because they don't show their work. And so people, of course, can bake in all kinds of conspiracies come with, with them. But nonetheless, if you take in all the metrics that are available and some more, and sort of you can sometimes find a consensus as, oh, this team is in the 20 to 35 range and this team is in the 5 to 15 range. And it can give you, again, a, something of a blueprint or a map to reach some type of conclusion that involves strength of schedule. But what those metrics I don't really take into account is, well, a couple of different things. A, 
How many night games did you play where you were on the road? How mm-hmm. often did your games, your tough games, stack up? Did you? And this is where the SEC gets dinged, right? And I think to a certain degree, rightfully so, but maybe not to the extent the the loudest critics will claim. How often did you stagger your tough games in between non-conference patsies and bye weeks? Because the SEC is great at sort of protecting, generally speaking, protecting its good teams when it comes to that. Though Alabama fans will tell you, boy, you know, we had, I think it was two years ago, we had four or five games against teams that were coming off buys. Right. All, all of those things, whether it's for Alabama, Notre Dame, or the, are baked into strength of schedule too. But there's also no way to quantify those things. Of course not. And, I, and I'll be honest, I think what I've learned having been in the business for a bit now is that that ambiguity and the inability to conclusively solve some of these arguments, debates, is kind of one, why we love the sport. And also, I think the sport loves it itself. You know, they, they like that ambiguity. They like that. I think the theater of college football is allowed to, to operate 12 months a year when really you're only playing the sport for a very small fraction of the calendar because it's so rich with debate potential in every aspect. Right. I think that's why. Because you could take some very emphatic steps right now to tear off these th- this block of 130 teams. We could do it. I mean, we, we, we've talked about this in earnest a couple times because of the just the budget discrepancies and how insane it is to think that a program like Louisiana Monroe is on the same footing as Clemson, that they're playing the same sport the same way. That's just not true. We don't want to do that. Our big messy stew and we like complaining about it, which is just a, I think that's what sets the sport apart is that we, we don't really want to fix our flaws. You know, it's like cranky old relatives. Like they don't, you know, they, they want to have something to complain about because this is what keeps us going if you ever felt completely and totally satisfied about uh, the field of four in a playoff or who would win the national, you know, who, who really deserved to be be in or or did the national champion last year, you know, would they have won it 10 or 20 times? Or, you know, the, the simulation question that we get a lot. I think we got that mainly because Alabama lost last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and we'll get to that a little later. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, next stop. We we want all this. I, I think I think we crave it. It would be really, really quiet right now if they didn't. And so the thing I've learned is not to to shout down or shout back, but really just you kind of have to live almost Zen-like in these arguments because no one is ever going to be satisfied. It's just not possible. I think there's too many fan bases. It's too diverse of a sport. So there's also a lot of fun in that, you know. Oh, no, that is something that the powers that be do not want to take away, and it's one of the reasons why they landed on four, and it's one of the reasons why there isn't a great rush to eight. I think eventually we will get to a bigger playoff because a a bigger playoff will increase the national interest in the sport if you just include these teams, if you just say, okay, Pac-12, you're in, Big 12, Big 10, you're in. But that's a revenue-driven also reason to do that. So revenue, revenue will eventually lead to expansion. Right, but it's funny you bring that up in those terms because there's, you know what is going on right now in college sports? It's College World Series, right? That is a provincial, uh, regional sport. Mm-hmm. ESPN would very much like it not to be. There are several several major conferences that would like it to be as, a, as significant in the national conversation a third college sport as it could be. But the reason why it's not is because a, a, a substantial portion of the United States cannot play baseball in February. Mm-hmm. Okay? Right. Right. It's that simple. It doesn't make their fans worse. It doesn't make their schools bad. I think Michigan's in there this year. You know, the Big Ten has come back after a serious drought. The reason I bring that up is that I live in the belly of the beast in Nashville, in the Southeastern Conference. I went to a Southeastern Conference school. Uh, you know, I'm originally from Georgia. I, I, I've, I've known this you know, my entire life. And I'm, I'm almost always at odds with the SEC driven narratives. And what you just said about keeping it a national sport, I think that's so much more important than fans in the hotbed areas realize, you know, to me, when ESPN gives the, we get these press releases, I'm sure you get them too, about the television ratings for every big event, right? This big Saturday night game on ABC or the college football playoff or what have you. Remember, because we, we all freaked out a couple years ago because the, the semis were on New Year's Eve, and that was a huge blow to the sport. But when I see Birmingham 
as the number one television market or number two or three television market for a Saturday night game. Everybody wants to beat their chest with pride down here. To me, that's that, that's anxiety fuel mm. because the future it's of the problem. sport, it has to exist on a national level. Mm-hmm. The number one television market for a national championship game or a major a major game in a major American sport should always be New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, you know, maybe Houston or Atlanta. The fact that it's Birmingham, that scares me because I do think that if you have if this thing gets too regional and too aggressive, and I think if we have a playoff this year, what if if you and I, I know you and I aren't betting men, but if we had to put down money that the Pac-12 misses the playoff again right now, we would feel pretty good about that, wouldn't we? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. But as time goes on, that's way more detrimental than people realize in maintaining the interest of a national sport, mm-hmm. and that has to be addressed. And so. There's a million reasons, most of them financial in the millions. I didn't mean to create a terrible pun there yeah. to expand the playoff six, eight, whatever. I personally think eight's fine. I think you give five auto bids. You always with eight, it's inarguable that you give the G5 team a bid. Right. You know, if it's UCF, if it's Boise, if it's one of those schools, if it was Houston a couple of years ago. Um, but also maintaining a balanced national picture is extremely important. Yeah, and I would also say for those who are in the power hubs right now, right, the seats of power in the southeast, whether that is Clemson, Georgia, or again anything from let's say South Carolina, North Carolina down through Texas, right, and then parts right. of the parts of the adjacent Texas area, you can say I don't care about the Pac-12, I don't care about the Big Ten, I don't care about these schools. Let them get better. At a certain point, the tide raises all boats, right? Like your sport won't grow if it doesn't all grow together. And if it simply becomes more and more regional, that will have an effect on how you run your programs to yeah, a certain degree. Or you can just – but you can also be – listen, you could be college baseball and you can win all the trophies and, and go, yeah, 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 we win all the trophies in the SEC or the ACC and that's it. Tough. Blah, and but but at some point it's not the sport that you're looking for. It's not that like nobody will care that you won your all your championships and you have all the trophies, right? You'll get to bang your chest about it, but at a certain point the sport itself will cease to grow. And if you're not growing, you're shrinking because that's just basically that's the way inertia. That's the way that's the way physics sure. works. So I think it is something. While I know a lot of folks poo-poo that idea of. You have to expand. You have to do some things to incorporate these other regions because it's for the good of the sport as a whole. And people say, well, you're rewarding. You're, it's a, that's participation. You're not rewarding excellence, blah, blah, blah. But you are creating a national sport that in some way you benefit from. You will benefit from the big TV contract because the SEC is a, not just a regional power. It is a national powerhouse with national pull. And if, again, it becomes too regional, you, you lose out too. It's very funny. You know, college football is the only area in which Southerners don't want to evangelize. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never understood this. It's an interesting like, point. <laughs> if, if anything, I, I, I used to have these arguments when Boise came of age. And, yeah, I do have a soft spot for G5s, and I probably always will. I was raised on uh, – at the time, I, I grew up watching a team that was in the FCS. So we, I mean, we really only got to saw them if we went to, you know, went to go see them in Statesboro, Georgia Southern. Um, and that's really where I learned to love the sport, but it was so niche. And, and then to discover those other teams in the G5, in the FCS division two that have all of these wonderful traditions and rivalries and storylines and his, and you know, it's all tucked into these, all these great corners across the country. Yeah. I will always, always have a soft spot for them. And so I, I am, I guess I'm biased. I'm biased in that way, but I've never understood why. If you are the world's biggest Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida fan, you wouldn't want the rest of the country to have the same uh, moral structure you do, the same emphasis and priority, right? That's that that's what we all want. That that's sort of a very American way of thinking about this. Not to get too philosophical, but you don't. If you want to run around and say, you know what, I build my entire weekend around Tennessee football. You know, I tailgate this. I have these season tickets, and we do this, and we're crazy fans, and da 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 da. Wouldn't you also want other people in the country to feel that way, right? So, so if a Boise State comes of power, uh, I don't understand why they get so aggressive in denouncing it, which goes back to the strength of schedule thing. You know, it's 
College football does not like a usurper. It never has, even within its own conferences. When you see schools that were previously bad come of age or you know, suddenly take, take flight, I'm always fascinated by programs that can break a traditional rut. I'm talking 30, 40, 50 years, right? So imagine the, the Florida program before the, like, 1990, mm-hmm. okay? Or imagine Oregon before the Nike money. It's amazing to see programs change and sustain it and, and and become defined as an elite because it's so incredibly hard to do. Well, I, I would also – you always tend to bring it back to the G5 element of this, which is fine because that, that is absolutely a big part of it. But when, what you're talking about, that sort of breakthrough, and here's why I think if you're the SEC, just because you're nationalizing the sport or making the sport more national – uh, and and that steps are being taken above SEC level to do that doesn't mean your hold on the sport, your supremacy is going to stop anytime soon. There are so many things that go into college football that are well beyond college football and college sports. We have gotten here through a, a shift in demographics, through culture changes, through population movement and all of those things that have, I mean, that's why the Florida programs, I always say that's one of the most fascinating things in all of college football history is the rise of the Florida programs, which came with also the rise of the state of Florida, right? The Florida programs became great because a lot of people moved to Florida. If you look at the migration, especially the state of Florida, but also so much of this is wrapped up in, you know, why I'll give you a question. Someone asked me this and I didn't have a great answer at the time. Why are so many urban campuses not as strong at college football? Why are so many urban campuses are not? So as strong in other words, at college and football? if you, if you look at the generational shift, everything from white flight to the economic transition in America to people leaving the Rust Belt city campuses for the longest time, uh, everything, you know, Memphis, Pittsburgh, uh, you know, Louisville before they kind of had a cash injection in the last 10, 15 years. I would say so. because there, it just, you, there, there isn't the space to play it to a certain degree. And, and, and right. So- but the city of Memphis is one of the most well-recruited cities in the South. There's mm-hmm. a ton of talent that comes spilling out of there. So where, where did the emphasis go? Why did it go that way? Mm-hmm. That's what's, you know, this stuff's it, it's, it's fascinating to me because people, most of this is all just economics and sociology, and it all just feeds back into this the territorial fandom thing. So, yeah, but I digress. No, but, but it's a good point, though. Again, it's economics, it's, soci- it's sociology, and it ends up like seeping into college football. And by the way, this problem, this I, I'll use air quotes over problem of the sport becoming more and more regional. Again, we can make there are some solutions to sort of force the issue here, but they're not real solutions. The the fact of the matter is, you know, football participation in California is trending down. Football participation in lots of the country is trending down, whereas in the places where it dominates right now, it is either not trending downward as quickly or it has stabilized or in some places it is actually upticking. Those are the long term numbers that matter to literally that matter to who will be winning national championships because of the culture of the South is still a football-based culture, and it is shifting for lots of different reasons, which we don't necessarily have to go into because this would that would take a, another hour to get into. <laughs> but there's a lot of reasons why it's shifting, some good, some bad, some indifferent. That stuff is all very well entrenched, and it's going to take something beyond just, hey, Pac-12, now you get to play in the playoff to really shift the balance of power. But if we let the Pac-12 into the playoff and if we made sure the Big Ten was there every year, it would at least help a little bit and, again, consider growing the sport. So I think well, we, I'll, I'll let you make the last point on that and then we'll dump that topic. Well, I'm actually – I kind of want to transition because – Okay, we, great. We, everybody's bringing up the Pac-12 as an example right now, Right. And it, it does feel alarming to those of us who sort of work as gatekeepers and vanguards and, you know, it shouldn't be this bad. Now, when you get into the causation part of this, it seems like everybody's got a different opinion. I know I, I would think that I, I can tell you and I think you'd agree with me that not running the business of it as well as as they should have these past years and going in an extremely unique, <laughs> unique way of doing things with Larry Scott and and moving in and buying up the real estate and having the high operating budget, all that stuff, right? Um, that has hurt those programs to a degree. 
is that why these programs are not nationally relevant in the top 10 since at the moment? I, I don't think so. I think we've had just a perfect storm, a confluence of, of events that I, have, I agree with that, by the way. It's yeah, created this problem. Going, yeah. there's, there's, it can't be just one thing. There are a lot of campus-level issues that are hitting the Pac-12 right now. I, when I go on a radio station out in the Pac-12 or something along, along those lines, I I'll constantly get this type of question. I'm sure you, too, yeah. you do, too, is what's wrong with the Pac-12? And again, just as you say, there's sort of an overlay here of like, yes, I know Larry Scott has made some bad calls. Yes, I understand revenue is down. But there are some campus-level issues here that have nothing to do with Larry Scott, one of them being it would be nice if USC was competent, right? <laughs> Well, I do think, look, the bottom line is that's the linchpin. They don't want it to be, but, you know, I, I'll say this, as successful as the Big Ten is right now, if you, they need Ohio State and or Michigan to be nationally dominant at any moment or, or they are a shell of themselves, mm-hmm. okay? What the, the best trick that the SEC has pulled so far is that, and I know we're in the Saban era where things are a little more kind of calcified, but the SEC has five, sometimes six programs that can hold that banner for four or five years, yeah, right? That's exactly so right. If Alabama falls off, you would have an LSU or a Florida, a Georgia now. You know, it, that's, I think, what the Big Ten thought they were going to do by splitting into a division, by annexing Nebraska, was to develop a power base that was four to five deep. The Pac-12 has so much more work to do in that regard and that their best number two was, in the long view, and I'm not trying to be insulting because I find their program fascinating, Oregon was an overnight job. Okay, mm-hmm. it was a it was sort of a, a bizarre marketing experiment with a unique offense that was all sort of run under the kingdom of Chip Kelly. And when he left, they couldn't keep it going at that national level. I know that his successor went to a national title game before someone very angrily tweets at me. Um, the Pac-12 just didn't have the depth. So when you lose USC as a nationally dominant team, it's very hard to pick up the slack. I like everything that Chris Peterson has done at Washington. OK, he's even even when their program is not super warm and fuzzy to the media, uh, I, I'm fascinated by what they do on the field. I think they've got a great system going there. I think they're I think they're a, a nationally dominant program, whatever kind of compliment you can pay them. I'll do it. There still needs to be more. And, and I, I think th- these kind of perceptions that we're talking about, Ralph, they're they're built over decades and generations. And I think as long as we're covering the sport, the Pac-12 won't be good unless USC is some kind of relevant. Okay, and it's great that if you have an Oregon or a Washington or even, you know, here's the other thing, too. I said this on the radio recently. Imagine if Stanford had the right quarterback right now. You know, Mm -hmm. they've fallen off to a degree, but it's really just that quarterback play. That's the biggest difference between like now and the Andrew Luck era. Right. Because they're recruiting the same way. Same coaches, same development. Everything's the same. I would argue that they're that they're not, that they've also fallen off in some other areas where they seem to have they were. Listen, they have a very slim margin for error. Right. I mean, they quite literally they are not recruiting and bringing in as many players. So they get very high end classes. But if they miss on a couple of offensive linemen and it tends to be offensive linemen where they do best. If a couple of those fours and occasional five stars end up playing like three stars, that sets Stanford back a lot. But I, I, again, that's no, a, I that's a bit that. of, my, my, that's a bit my, of a tangent. My, my stance is always that if you had that luck like talent, if you had a dominant quarterback in that offense, it would it would mask a lot of their problems. Mm-hmm. But that's they've fair. become so one dimensional. But again, Stanford was a nationally relevant program up until very recently. So. They're not as far off, I think, is probably what we're trying to get at here. Is that right. it, it, this is not a lost cause by any stretch. Mm-hmm. I think you have to you you have to fix the house at USC. It's dangerous not just for USC but for the entire West Coast when Heritage Hall is as sideways as it appears to be right now. Yes. So that has to be fixed. Yes. Right there. Um, I do. I am fascinated by what I hear coming out of UCLA, but that seems to be a five-year project you know what let me do this let me actually i was going to take a break but forget that for a second here because we've gone down a road here that i am fascinated in and that is ucla i was fine with the i love the hire the idea of bringing chip there i was not in, in any ways panicked by what i saw on the field last year I think anybody who had any sense of what that roster looked like knew last year was going to be a little rough what worries me is when they have the 
what was it, 35th, 43rd, something like that ranked recruiting class in that area. And I understand that Chip is going to sort of do the Chip thing and look for guys that sort of fit. And that doesn't necessarily prop up the star ranking. Mm-hmm. But boy, in Southern California, you should stumble across a couple of extra four stars to get you at least into the top 25, wouldn't you think? So I, I, I became a lot more skeptical about the Chip Kelly situation at UCLA when the recruiting rankings came out last year. Now, that doesn't mean it's, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping off the bandwagon, and I th- still think long-term this could work out very well. I'm just going to say I'm not, not quite as enthused as I was, let's say, a year ago at this time. I think it's a really, really slow project. Uh, they've got infrastructure. They've got athletic department organization, let's call it. They've mm-hmm. got a lot of work in a lot of areas to be what they think they can be in football. And by the way, this is sort of like a Texas A&M <laughs> existential crisis. You may think that you can be USC in football or, or be among the top 20 programs in football. You never really have been right. in the modern era. That is no this doubt. Is, UCLA has always, has always been a place that has never quite been what it aspires to be and also what the perception of what it should be. Right, it yeah, has never like, really yeah, it reached like Texas, that level. A&M in that yeah, regard. And again, very much like Texas A&M, yes. I mean, if, if spending... If spending money was all it took, then Texas A&M would have won the last 20 national titles. Right. It's not that simple. So it's a long-term project, and it's not something that you can hang your hat on at all. Now, all this being said, by the way, would you look on paper, and this is not, you know, my natural interest as a writer in this field is not necessarily to to play the prognostication game, but you look at Oregon, that's a playoff team, or at least a playoff contending team on paper. Yeah, there's possibilities. Right yeah, there's very, definitely possibilities. I'm trying to talk myself out of it because I think everybody else is sort of talking themselves into it when we go into like the prognostication game, which we will get into over the next month or so, where everybody's making predictions about everything because there's nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, just so, you know, just to forewarn listeners to this podcast on the regular, that I am in the process of, of trying to come up with reasons to pick against Oregon in the Pac-12. So I, I'm, I'm going to sort of like stand on that hill and that will be my space going into this season is the oh I don't I, I think we should tap the brakes on Oregon for whatever that's worth uh, the, so the best and most horrific argument you know crisis situation that was presented to me recently was what if Oregon comes into the playoff field as like a one loss or two loss team but they beat an, they beat Auburn and then Auburn falls apart completely as people are always want to predict Auburn to do Always possible. Uh, you know, every year Auburn's going to fall apart, of course, right? Or be a meteor, right? right? You oh, know, be a meteor and tear through the SEC, one or the other, right? So, but what? So, what if Auburn actually falls apart, and then the Auburn win is a weakness, is a hindrance rather than rather than a bullet point for Oregon, and then they're left out as a one-loss team? Yes, um, that's go- the fun of the fourteen playoff is you can just construct these horrific logic scenarios with these one and two loss teams. To bring it back to the strength of schedule argument. Okay, so I've already kept you a a while, but I still have to take a very quick break. We have to come back. We have to tie up one other loose end about why Clemson and Alabama is still being debated today on Twitter. This is the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with Stephen Godfrey from SB Nation. And we're back. Stephen Godfrey from SB, SB Nation. He is the national college football writer. Here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, he's making his debut and doing a really fine job, especially at a time when there's not a ton going on and we're sort of creating conversation and seeing where it goes. You're doing a wonderful job, Stephen. Thank you. I can blow the eight. I, I try. I am, I am sort of disappointed that I've waited this long to have you on. So Twitter is not real life, but there is an interesting conversation that has gone on on Twitter over the last couple of months, really almost starting since the day after the national championship game. But as things get slower and slower, it becomes more of a thing to talk about, which is the relevance of Clemson beating Alabama by 28 points. The concept of, but if they played 10 times, how often would that result be repeatable or how often would each team win? So, again, from an intellectual standpoint, I feel like that's a relevant conversation to have. In fact, I literally had a a, a very short version of that conversation with Paul Meyerberg from USA Today on my, like, day after the championship game podcast, where I said somewhat, 
some just sort of th- a throwaway line. Yeah, you know, if you played this game ten more ten times or nine more times, I bet mm-hmm. Alabama wins four or five of them, and certainly many of them are close games because. One result is not necessarily the result for every result when it comes to football. I mean, it's just it's just natural. It's just logical. And Paul sort of laughed at that and was like, really? Do you really think that? And we didn't go much further. But that's that line of thinking has had a life online. And for some reason, it seems to be something that gets debated down south with Clemson and Alabama. Alabama fans sort of take this weird pride in sort of saying, no, 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 we would win at least five times if we played. So I guess let's let, let me ask you something. This Is this a valuable argument to have from an or, or discussion to have from an intellectual level? Oh Lord, I don't know if any of them are valuable, well. um, and I and I peddle these for a, you know a living to pay my mortgage. But um, valuable, uh, no, uh, highly entertaining, yes, and it is always fun to watch. Of all fan bases right now, the Nick Saban Alabama era fan base try and rationalize something. That's fantastic. I don't know if there's value or merit in it, but I know this: if they played ten times with those players and, and and the rosters that being the same within a period of time, I think you might see Alabama win an arguable amount of those games. Okay? okay. However, and this is what matters the most. And this is also what Nick Saban knows. If they played 10 times, if you simulated it 10 times on January the 7th, 2019, Clemson would win every time. And the reason why is that, we there's been such a consistency at Alabama that the consistency ended up killing them. And what I mean by that is they consistently recruit the best. They consistently develop the best. They consistently hire the best coaches. And you can control all of that, all of the various pipelines, except one thing. And that's that the demand in the industry will pull away your coaches, right? You can't, you can't hire a free agent wide receiver or linebacker from Alabama. That's not how the sport works. Okay. You know you can't get Nick Saban to go anywhere. But the one byproduct of that consistency is that the coaches develop, right? Everybody wants an Alabama, everybody wants a Saban coach, right? Everyone in the Southeastern Conference, we have we're living in the era of these Saban disciples, most of which completely eat the curb, uh, at least in comparison. You know, I still think the jury's out on Kirby, but what happened on January 7th, as best as I can tell, and from the folks I've talked to, was that more so than in any, any other year of the Saban era at Alabama, that coaching staff, one, was hastily put together, right? They were a very different coaching staff the prior year, and almost everybody in that room was headed out somewhere else as soon as that game was over mm-hmm. in a really remarkable way. And you go through and you look at the amount of turnover they had the next week after that game. I think that more than anything. And I'm not saying they were underprepared or they should have beaten Clemson. I, I don't want to get into that semantic part of it. But the state of that Alabama coaching staff specifically, I think, was in such an insane amount of transition, Ralph. You don't normally see that from good football staffs, right? Mm -hmm. We never see that. Everybody left. Coordinators, O-line, QBs, wide receivers. I mean, everybody's gone. Everybody's headed out somewhere else to be a head coach, to get a better job, to be OC here. I don't think that they were ready to manage that. And because of the weirdness of our sport and that you end the season in December, but then you your playoffs like basically a month later, I think it created way too much inconsistency. So that's interesting because I I will often point to games, whether they're within the season or a bowl game, and say, you know, sometimes the more stable team is the team that wins, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that, I'm not, yeah, I'm not like breaking any new ground there, but I think there are times when you like, when you see, you know, Florida state just getting crushed last year by, you know, teams with clearly inferior top to bottom rosters. A lot of that is just simply stability, right? Dino Babers has been at Syracuse for a few years. Syracuse sort of, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, whether they had just a miracle year, but Syracuse sort of knows what it's doing, and Florida State doesn't know what it's doing. And and a lot of that comes from coaching and turnover and things along those lines. So that's just a, a, an example. So you just think that that was, a, that was a stability against instability matchup, and that's where, uh, why we landed on that result. And again, not I'm not saying okay, instability. Okay, but let, let me also say this, okay. though. 
Trevor Lawrence, phenomenal talent. The that Clemson front, I mean, they were hounds from hell, right? They, sure. These these unbelievable quality talent, comparable to the best in the SEC. We haven't seen that in the last five to six years, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of the raw, draftable, pro talent available, Clemson is in every way, shape, and form now a top tier SEC program. So we haven't seen that. I think the margin of error was significantly smaller than. Alabama realized. Mm-hmm. I think because they because of the pattern of the of the this recent postseason rivalry, I think they did take a couple of things for granted. They look bottom line is they weren't prepared. You could tell in the second quarter this was not a, this was not a cohesive plan flat mm-hmm. out for the offense for Clemson to have been as aggressive and successful. I mean, it, it wasn't even so much the 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 final score. Ralph, I think it was like just the way they were they were beating them with chunk plays. They were beating them by confusing them. They were beating them by getting them out of position fairly easily. They were beating them on the significant downs too, yes. which was the other thing because because Alabama had a lot of yards, but every red zone green zone went to Clemson. Every pivotal third, pivotal fourth down went to Clemson. And now you could also talk about Yes. randomness and sequencing we can get into you know again bill c's area of numbers and say listen you know sometimes just the sequencing doesn't work out and all of a sudden you have a lot of good plays and then you run three bad plays in a row and you end up with no points so i i also have that a bit of an analytical mindset to think that part of what we saw last year was just weird it was just weird sequencing and that's not to take anything at all away from Clemson. The other part of this argument is, and trying to analyze what it means that Clemson won that game is, it doesn't matter. Clemson's got the trophy. They got the 20.8 point win. They're shoot, like, there is nothing that makes up for that if you're Alabama. There are no silver linings if you're an Alabama fan that come out of that game. Right now, on again, on an intellectual level, I could, as a, someone who does not care whether Alabama or Clemson wins, I can sort of analyze the game and say, "Listen, Alabama doesn't have structural flaws. They had, as you said, may, maybe we have some coaching issues that need to be settled." I could get into the numbers of the game and crunch things and say, "Listen, you know, this game could have easily been a, a, a one or two score game if a couple of plays flip." So we can do all that intellectual analysis, but it doesn't mean a damn thing if you're. Alabama, you got your ass whipped, and they got the trophy. So Clemson gets to celebrate that, and Alabama gets to go, damn, we don't have a trophy this year. And that's the end of that discussion. In other words, there's no, again, there's no silver linings here. There's no consolation prizes out of this, and there's no reason why Clemson needs to sort of not feel as good. It's all about the result when it comes to fandom. Where it becomes an interesting exercise is just the analysis for the purpose of simply being analytical and seeing what that means in the future. And that's why I think it's interesting to sort of say, yeah, if you played these teams 10 times, you would win, each team would win five games. And to me, that's my way of trying to sort of educate the public that like, hey man, like one result in one football game is not a definitive thing. And so we have to look at things differently and be open-minded to the idea that, hey, listen, just because you win a game and it goes this way doesn't mean that that's what that's what will happen in the future. So, again, that's my sort of analytical take on it, but it doesn't mean anything. It does not mean anything for Alabama. You do not necessarily, if you're an Alabama fan, you do not necessarily get to, you know, dry your tears on the idea that, oh, no, but we would have won five or six of those games if we played ten times. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But, uh, I mean, no one cauterizes a wound quite like Nick Saban. So. <laughs> You know, there's there is there's always an upside, and, and the amount of in, talk about inertia, the amount of consistency he's built sort of defies the physics of this sport because it's so volatile, and there's so many issues that are always waiting to happen. Um, his ability to galvanize uh, the roster probably was never in doubt, but certainly there's a renewed focus after this. Um, I, you know, I, I, it was weird. I, Alabama fans are just probably a little angry right now because there's an interim of time between that being the last thing, you know, the, the taste in their mouth, so to speak, and then a, another football season coming. On the whole, in the, in the long run, I think they're, they're going to be fine. I mean, this is still sure. arguably the most dominant period we've ever seen by a single coach at a single institution. So 
Um, it's interesting, I think, if you want to take something away from it, it's not so much of the who would have won what circumstantial if we modify this. I think it's interesting that we had now have uh, definitive proof that you can blueprint out a a team that can dominate Alabama and that can win in recruiting and be as good as you can be in college football and one, not be in the Southeastern Conference and two, not be built by Saban or a Saban disciple. Right. Um, I think that's really, really interesting. And that's what a lot of people have keyed in on during the offseason, at least in the coaching community when I talk to them, is that, hey, guys, there's another way. Right. It does not have to be this. Let me ask you one more thing about a line you threw up before, and I'll circle back around. That. I think it's inevitable that at some point Georgia will win a national championship. I think that they are recruiting in a way that you will position yourself that one year the ball will bounce the right way. They won't call it a, a fake punt. They right. won't gag on second and 20, whatever. And they're in position now to just eventually get one. It sounds like you have a little more skepticism than I would. Again, I just think that eventually this is the way it will work out. That it's almost inevitable that they will win a national You're championship. You're saying skepticism. I, 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 you seem like you are um, a little more skeptical about the, the inevitability. I, I think it is almost inevitable that they will, they will fall into a national championship at some point because they are positioning self, themselves to do so by simply recruiting at a level that only Alabama yeah. and Clemson are recruiting at. And I think it, it, it's as simple as that. I don't okay. think you have to overthink it. I think if you recruit at the level that they are recruiting at every year, eventually you will win a national championship. Yeah. Okay. My my professional answer is that yes, I agree with you. For not not so much because it, they they went the Saban imitation route, but they they went the Saban imitation route that fit th- what they needed to do, which was to rebuild their infrastructure, recruiting the city of Atlanta, right, and then also really kind of rally up that state in a way that hasn't been done in a long time, and and I think. And if I and if I'm sorry, let me just jump in one other thing there, Stephen. I'll let you finish your thought. The other thing is Georgia has never been a better place to recruit. It's always been a good place to recruit, but it literally has never been a better place to recruit as far as infrastructure and high schools and pay to coaches. It is becoming more like Texas, which in a sense is means that there is structure and order within the recruiting process and players who are ready to come to college, play in college, stay in college. There was a difference, though, culturally, and there's a couple ways to digress on this, but I, I'm from Georgia. I was originally from Macon. It, 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 UGA was and is and always will be that, that state brand. However, the difference between UGA and Georgia and Alabama and the state of Alabama is that you have a massive influx of population. Mm-hmm. And so in these areas, especially in Atlanta Metro, for instance, you don't have the baked-in, diehard, seventh, eighth-generation loyalty to, to the old state you, right? You have a lot That's of people coming into that market, transient. And that was something that Georgia never really seized upon. Um, I do think, I, I mean, I, I respect Mark Rick. Uh, I think he's an absolutely exceptional human being. There was some ennui, you know, there was some mm-hmm. fatigue, laziness. Uh, laziness might be too strong of a word, but I just think maybe he didn't want to grasp the reality of what you had to do to stay ahead of it. And they got pilfered by Alabama for a long time. So to get back to it, I, I, I do agree with you professionally because not only did they find a Nick Saban defensive coordinator who could recruit, but they found one who was from the state of Georgia, went to UGA. Uh, his father was a high school coach. He understands all of the different pockets and areas. That's, if, you, if you're listening to this, by the way, and you're not from the South, the state of Georgia is the largest state in size east of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. It's a big place. Yeah. And the population growth is only going to continue to make it a big place. So it, it, it's a lot to wrangle. It's one of the reasons it's so attractive right now in football coaching. So, yeah, I think Kirby was fit for that. And, and that was one of the reasons why I think he'll be successful. Now, on a personal level, uh, I, I'm a fan of many teams from the state of Georgia, and don't ever tell me that it's inevitable they win a title. <laughs> okay, because I've seen I've seen it all. Uh, yeah. So if yeah. you if you told me that this would be the greatest run of a college football coach at a major program that didn't win a title, I would just as easily believe that, Ralph. <laughs> like, if, like, th- let's say the next seven years they win ten to twelve games a year, but for whatever reason like just a series of unfortunate circumstances every January, mm-hmm. and they never actually win the title, I would believe that. Absolutely. <laughs> There's, I don't know, the whole state is on a Native American burial ground or something. I don't know. 
know. That's my personal opinion. My professional opinion agrees with you. Very good, Stephen. Well, listen, I, I appreciate you taking so much time with me and being so good and covering a lot of ground. And we are making a little something out of nothing at this time of the season. Again, I, I, I sort of, I sort of bring brought Stephen on to essentially like try to ex, like take like little morsels of topics, little seedlings of topics, and hopefully we could grow them, fertilize them, and grow them, <laughs> and they would they would blossom into full blown conversations. And I think we managed to do that. I think we did okay. I think we did okay. Stephen Godfrey is the National College Football Writer for SB Nation. You can catch him. Well, you can catch him at SB Nation. And thank you very much for your time, your effort, your bloviating. And we, <laughs> uh, hopefully we will see each other soon in a press box. Yes, sir. And now, three and out. First down. There appears to be a pipeline between USC and Illinois. An unlikely pipeline, I'd say. Lovey Smith's Illini have added three grad transfers from USC this offseason, including two wide receivers. The connection between the Trojans and Illini is defensive line coach Austin Clark, who played and coached at Cal, did two years as a grad assistant at USC before joining the Illinois staff in 2018. The Illini were also, and probably still are, in the market for a quarterback transfer And they had given Matt Fink from USC a look, but he decided to stay in Los Angeles. This figures to be a pivotal season for Smith at Illinois. What does that mean? Well, Josh Whitman, the AD, hired Smith to make a major splash three years ago, and there has been baby steps towards progress since. My sense is Illinois doesn't need a breakout season from Smith for Whitman to say, okay, this is all right, we'll ride this. Finances alone will certainly make Illinois apprehensive to cut loose the one-time successful NFL coach. Bowl eligibility, which has happened just once in the last seven seasons at Illinois, is likely to be enough to keep the Illini heading in the direction they are going with Lovey Smith. The Illini have three very winnable non-conference games to start the season. The problem comes within the Big Ten. They draw two of the Big Ten East, Big Four, Michigan and Michigan State. And the West is now filled with programs that are all improving faster than Illinois. Second down, transfers and the waiver process again were in the news last week. It's a staple of the offseason. At a convention in Florida, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby said he believed transfer rules should be standardized, uniform for all sports, and all athletes should sit out one season after transferring. In the high-profile sports, football, basketball, baseball, hockey, that is already the case. But in other sports, athletes can use a one-time exception, which allows them to immediately be eligible after their first transfer. Personally, I think Bowlesby is right in that uniformity should be the goal, though I would lean more toward all athletes being allowed to use a one-time exception to be immediately eligible to play, so the opposite of what Bowlesby was proposing. That would cut down on the use of the waiver process, which is a major source of frustration because it seems like the results are inconsistent. I wrote about that a couple of weeks back, pointing out that the supposed ambiguity and inconsistency of the rulings is not so much about the rulings themselves. It's more about public perception, a dearth of publicly available information, and how the waivers are put together by the schools that submit them. When the NCAA introduced the transfer portal last year as part of transfer rule reforms, the group tasked with crafting the legislation considered making the transfer rules uniform across all sports. But that's challenging. So it was tabled and they made the changes that were a little easier to make. The waiver was a separate issue, but I'm not sure how you can put together rules governing transfers, even if the rules are uniform across sports, that doesn't have some type of waiver appeal process built in. There will always be situations that fall outside the routine when you're dealing with students, not employees working under bargained labor agreements or contract. As is the case with college sports, there has to be a process to deal with exceptions to any rule. Third down, the ACC Coastal has had a different winner each of the last six seasons. 
The only team left that hasn't won the division is Virginia, and the Cavaliers are trending in the right direction under Bronco Mendenhall heading into his fourth season. UVA will be a trendy pick in the back half of the preseason top 25. I guess they will be no worse than second choice to win the Coastal in the preseason prognostications. Miami, simply by default, could receive more support based on purely talent and past recruiting rankings. I'm personally going to tap the brakes on UVA. I really don't like the way the schedule sets up. Getting Pitt, Florida State, and Miami, along with a non-conference game against Notre Dame, all within the first six weeks of the season, Pitt and Miami and Notre Dame are all road games. The good news for UVA is 5-3 and three could win the Coastal this year. 6-2 and two should certainly do the trick. And UVA's schedule without Clemson and with rebuilding Louisville from the Atlantic Division does set up well in the back end for the Hoos to make a late charge after a so-so start. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and at Podcast One. And anywhere you'd like to download your podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.